message is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Well, good morning and welcome to Cornerstone 4th of July weekend. You know, I, I have to uh, confess to you that this is the strangest Independence Day celebration I have ever dealt with personally because I have struggled with recent events that have limited my enthusiasm, you know, and I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I, don't want to, I want to be grateful for what I have and not focus on the negative. I want to be positive and move forward. And, and I, I have to praise God that the day before SCOTUS revealed their ruling on things, that God gave me this message out of Psalm 11. And I want us to be there. If you have a Bible, if you have an electronic Bible of some sort, I want you to open to Psalm 11 because there are some passages in that that I haven't included on on the presentation that I want you to see. But there's also 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you have a bulletin, just write these out in that blank area where your notes come so that you can reference back to it when I tell you I'm going to want you to find 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and I'm going to want you to find Luke chapter 21. Before the day's over, well, I'll say before it gets noon instead of before the day's over because that's very threatening to some people, I know. But I just want you to, to, you know, there was a cartoon that kind of expressed that that came over social media last night, and it was this child holding the parent's hand saying, looking at the fireworks going, what are we celebrating? And the parent says that we used to be free. You know, and that's kind of the sense of what I struggled with through this, not because I feel persecuted, actually, but it's because of the the grief that I feel that the freedom that I once knew, I don't believe my grandchildren are going to know. I don't think that's going to happen unless we repent and we turn back to God because this is how I feel my world is right now. You know, kind of sense my world being like this. And some of you may feel the same way. And so I began to think about it and what should we say. And God gave me this Psalm 11 as I began to read it. It just ministered to me and helped me understand it. I'm not the first one that's felt this way. I won't be the last one that's felt this way. And I asked myself, then what are you doing, God? We're going to read Psalm 11 in a minute. But the question comes up, then what are you doing? What are you doing to America? Is it time to panic? You know, that was kind of the way I was sensing things as I was going forward last week. And the writer of Psalms, which is David, and we're going to delve back into his life, as we did the last time that I spoke. The writer of Psalms is David, and he asked this simple, or he is asked this simple question, or he has posed this simple question. And we'll see the context of it in a minute. But the question is, when the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, I want to give you the, the backdrop for this, the story behind this. And that's that Saul 
had been appointed the first king Israel ever knew. They had demanded a king, and they wanted a, and Saul was appointed the king, and not long after that, he was given his first mission. And his mission was to go down and defeat the Amalekites totally, wipe them out. Not a person alive, not to leave a person alive, not to leave one, not to pick up one cattle, leave them, don't, don't leave them alive either, not to take any garments or gold or anything of any value, but just to go down and decimate the Amalekites and come home. That's all he was supposed to do. And he failed that because he left the king alive and he brought back cattle, sheep and oxen. And Samuel, who is the prophet of that day, comes up to him and he says, why have you failed? And he said, failed? I was total successful. And then why do I hear sheep bleeding and oxen lowing? And God at that moment rejects Saul because instead of repenting, he gives excuse. He says, oh, I, I, we need to make a sacrifice to God. Oh, yeah, that's why I did that. You know, like the kid who's stealing cookies out of the cookie jar, and you say, what are you doing? He turns around and goes, I was getting a cookie for you. It's kind of like Saul does there. God says, what are you doing, Saul? And he turns around and says, well, I was going to make a sacrifice to God. Yeah, right. Sure you were. Now, I know what some people think. Wait a minute. Why are we serving a God that, that says go down and destroy this genocide, wipe a people out. Why would we even consider serving a God like that? And my answer to that is it's hypocrisy to question that when we would be grateful for whoever wiped out ISIS. We would be grateful whoever wiped out Boko Haram or Haram. You know, those people that stole all the girls, bring back our girl campaign kind of thing. We would think that the people who went out and totally annihilated them and anybody associated with them and brought back the girls were heroes, would we not? Well, the Amalekites are those people of that day. They were gorillas who lie in wait. Now, I don't mean apes, but I mean gorillas who, warriors who lie in wait for people, sneak up on them in the middle of the night. If there's a big trail of them, what they did to the Israelites, they would sneak up on the end of the, of the trail and take the people in behind. You know, just sneaky, guerrilla warfare. And God said, enough is enough. And he sent Saul down to take care of the issue, but instead of taking care of the issue, and let me tell you, because he didn't take care of the issue, the Amalekites continued to be a thorn in the side of Israel. He sends them down, take care of the issue. And he didn't. And God rejects him. And pretty soon, God sends Samuel down to anoint a 12-year-old boy king. His name is what? David. And David gets anointed king, and about five years later, at the age of 17, David kills Goliath. And at that moment, he becomes part of the entourage of Saul, and Saul brings him in, and David is playing his harp and going out to war and everything he's doing for Saul. But when they came home for war, from war, and David had been successful, there was a new song on the top 50, on the top 100 chart, and it was Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousand. And Saul was jealous, and he raged. And God, now I want you to notice this: the next day after the song. 
fit the charts. The next day, an evil spirit sent from God took control of Saul. If you have that anywhere, if you're in your Bible and you don't mind highlighting that, I want you to highlight that because we're going to come back to that. And he began to rave inside the palace. David, David was playing the lyre as usual, but Harp was holding, uh, Harp. Saul was holding a spear, and he threw it thinking, I'll pin David to the wall. But David got away from him twice that day. And I say that day because this was a common occurrence. Now, God delivered Saul into David's hand no less than seven times, and David would not take his life because he respected the position of Saul as king. Now understand, Saul is not a respectable king. God has rejected him, but David is of himself a respectable person. And so he will not disrespect the order of things. And it doesn't matter. This, this would tell you, whatever you think of the politics of our government, it is important that we be respectful of what God has established. Very important that we do that. So Saul, unable to pin David to the wall, issues an order. David is to be killed. And he sends a group down to arrest David, and instead they find a statue covered in goat skin in the bed because Saul's wife, Saul's daughter, David's wife, Micah, has, Michael has delivered him because she loved him. And the next time that they tried to capture him, Saul's son, Jonathan, delivers him because he loves him. And it just continues on that way. Multiple times David escapes. And he finally realizes that this is a dangerous situation to be in and decides to go away from the presence of Saul. And he goes to a place called Nob. Now you think that's a, an odd name for a city? But in Arkansas, there's a place called Balnop. So they still do that today. But he goes down to this area, and there is, there's a, a gathering of priests there that serve the Lord. And David goes in and asks for bread, something to eat for him and the people who are going with him. And, and uh, the priest is a little bit skeptical, but he goes ahead and he serves David. And Saul finds out about it because he let David go and he says, you have conspired against me. And he killed the priest and 84 of his priest companions. And only one of them escapes. Now, he ordered that all the priests be killed by his attending guard. But they were Israelites, and they refused to obey the order. Civil disobedience. They refused to obey the order because to them, the higher order was God in this. Get that? You know, that the higher order was God in this, and they refused. So an Edomite named Doeg, who was a foreigner in the land, he did the dirty work. And David said, you know, when David heard about it, I knew he saw me there, and it was going to be trouble. And so they get word, David gets word that he has killed all of these priests, and there is just this... You know, David runs off to a, 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 a gath or goth, it's called, and he figures out that's not a good place to be. So he goes to the caves of Adullam. 
And the address of the caves of the Dulem are on the corner of Promise Avenue and Reality Way, right? So David took refuge in the cave of the Dulem, and he wrote many psalms out of this cave, but one of the psalms he wrote was Psalm 11, because the people had come to him and said, David, run away, flee to the hills, escape, because they are even now plotting your destruction. The bow, as you were talking about the bow a moment ago, the bow is bent, the arrow is in, and the bow is bent, and they're ready to let go at you. They're looking for your destruction. So run away. After all, once the foundations have been destroyed, it's no use. What can the righteous do? We should just give up, surrender to the inevitable. This is what it's, how David responds to that in the psalm. I have taken refuge in the Lord. How can you say to me, escape from the mountain like a bird? For look, the wicked string the bow, they are telling him. They put the arrow on the bowstring to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? David, flee. They're out to get you. It's no use. There's nothing you can do. You'll never be king now. And remember, David had the promise, right? He would be king. But he'll never be king now, they're saying, because of all the events that has happened. We will never once again. And let me say this to you, that I believe that we're in an age. When I was a kid, if you were a, a faithful attender of a respectable church, you were lended credibility by your participation in the church. I believe we're in an age where that's reversing. When the people that you come in contact with find out that you're a faithful attender to a church, conservative kind of church, that is going to be a scourge. It's going to be a bad mark on your reputation. And we know this because people are being brainwashed to think this way, right? We're all right-wing nuts. If you're sitting here today listening and agreeing with half of what I'm saying, you're a right-wing nut. It's what people think. Because they've been brainwashed, basically, by the narrative of the media that we are so ready to hear and listen to in our day and time or be entertained by. Because that's really what it is today. Instead of news, it's entertainment. But here was David's response to their issue. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes watch His enemies. He, he examines everyone the Lord examines the righteous and the wicked. He hates the lover of violence. He will bring a rain, burning coals, and sulfur on the wicked, a scorching wind that will be their portion, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright will see his face. That's David's response, or his immediate response. How can you say this to me? My trust is in the Lord. And the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes watch. He examines everyone. He sees 
what's happening. He's promised, and, and this is in the back of David's discussion here. He has promised. He anointed me king. He has promised I will be king. And I don't think David was wanting to be king for the sake of being somebody. I think David was willing to accept being king because God had ordained it. God had ordained it. And he knew that the Lord would see it through. But the question there is, okay then, what is God going to do? What is God doing? When you look at our situation in the world that we're in and, and the idea of all of this that's happening and how fast it's been coming on us of late and how far we're being dragged down into the mire of all of this, into the mud what is God doing? What is God doing to America? Is it time to panic? What can we do? Is there anything we can do? I mean, how many of you have enough money to put back in your 401k to buy ABC? Anybody? Or start your own broadcasting network and just take over a new... We don't... They're probably among all the Christians. Even if you could put the money together, they wouldn't sell it to us because it's part of the plan. So, what can we do? What can we do? What is God doing? Well, I want to tell you what I think He's doing first because this is what God said He's doing. He is testing our faith. He examines everyone. His eyes watch, and he's testing our faith. And we can throw up our hands and panic and be negative and decry all that's happening to us, or we can continue to trust in God. We can continue to follow his plan. We can continue to praise his name, bring him glory, lift him up, no matter the cost. No matter the cost. And he's testing our faith at this time. Are we willing to be patient? And I, when I say patient, I don't mean wait, twiddling our thumbs until something happens, but continue to believe, continue to possess, continue to share, continue to allow God to use us to impact the world around us until he does what he's up to doing. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his throne, or the Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes watch. He examines everyone. Now, I want you all to see this. We are not God's judge. He is ours. But we live in an age where everybody thinks they're God's judge. You want me to follow you, God? Then you have to be the kind of God I want to follow. Well, excuse me, but if there's only one, there are no other choices. You know? You follow the one that is there. No matter what you think about it, you are not God's judge. Now, this is something that Jesus often did. He have a great following behind him. And I know in John chapter 6... We're given this illustration, this story of Jesus, and all these people are following. He turns around, and he just stops them. It's kind of like I see this scene in Forrest Gump, you know, and he's running, and all those people running behind him, and he stops. 
And everybody stops behind him and they go, I think he's going to say something. And Jesus stops and he turns around and everybody's listening and he says, the only reason you follow me is because I gave you something to eat. Well, that's kind of offensive. And he says, but I tell you, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you can't follow me. And what was their response? That saying is too hard. And they left. He looks at his 12 that he's chosen. He said, will you leave too? Of course, Peter says, Who will we, how can we leave? You have the words of life. You have the words of life. Peter recognized that it didn't matter what the popularity, how the popularity of the crowd went. It didn't matter what everybody else thought or how everybody else reacted. They knew Jesus was the way. And they were going to cling to that. Even when it looked like everybody else was deserting, leaving, and they were. Peter says, no, we will follow. So he's testing their faith. In the process, he is writing the foundations. You know, what shall the righteous do when the foundations are destroyed? What will the righteous do? Now, I want to give you a sense of what the foundation of the practice of our faith is. It's the two great commandments, right? He tells, Jesus tells us this. This is the foundational element. If you keep these two, you keep all else of the law. You keep all that I ask you to do. And the first is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Which means there are no other foundations that substitute. Not social acceptance. That's not a good substitute. Because, let me, you know, what happens when the law, when the, when the socially acceptable thing changes? Well, what do you mean? What happens? Let me ask you this. What happens if Sharia becomes law? Are we as Christians supposed to go along with that and treat women and children the way that Sharia treats women and children or infidels, as they say? Is that what we're supposed to do? No, we're supposed to stand for what's right. But Satan's always trying to swing the pendulum one way or the other when God says, this is my word and keep my commandment. That's what he says. Depend on it. It's not democracy. The foundation of our faith is not democracy. There are millions of Christians worldwide who are under some sort of tyrannical reign. They are living their lives in danger every day. If they are caught or exposed as being Christians, they either are imprisoned or killed. You do not have to live in a democracy. God has not promised us a democracy to live out true faith in Christianity. It's not a judicial ruling either, right? Our hope does not hinge on whether or not the Supreme Court said what we wanted them to say. It just doesn't hinge on that. What it hinges on is this word right here. Love the Lord your God. It doesn't even hinge on the second commandment. 
Let me show you what it's supposed to look like. Living out our faith is supposed to look something like this. Next slide, please. Love God is the foundational material. And then it says, love others, love you. Right? That's the way we're supposed to build our life. I know it looks cheesy. Sorry, my family's back there going, oh, well, turn around and look back there. <laughs> there and I'm in someone else's way over here. But loving God is the foundation material. If you take loving others, next slide, please, and you change it as the foundation, in which I think our generations try to do that, we, we think we're exalting God by ignoring what He says and thinking we're loving others by being accepting of all manner of junk. And we have made an idol out of the second commandment. It doesn't own that place. It's subsequent to the first which says love God first. With what? All your heart, your emotion. Every emotion, I listed those out here, your heart, your emotion, joy, desire, fear, trust, awe, value, connection, addiction or need for God that we're supposed to love Him with all of our heart, with all of our mind, to throw oneself into knowing God with all of our strength, to commit one's resources, actions, and energy towards obedience, with all of our soul, who do we identify with? Do I want to be popular among those who, who believe something that I don't believe, and so I will compromise, or I will be silent in order not to receive the ire of those who I want to be popular with? Then I have betrayed my soul to them. And I'll tell you, even in my own family, I have a brother who just thinks I'm an idiot. I have a sister who is practicing homosexuality right now. They're so disappointed Ryan made a statement the other day, and my sister came back, I'm so disappointed in you. You know what? I wasn't put on this world to please my brother or my sister, but to please God. And you know what really happens when we are that way? We just destroy the foundation of faith. And we really make an idol out of ourselves because we would rather be accepted by people than accepted by God. No? That's what happens to us. God intends to write the foundations by calling us. See, we're at a place right now to say, okay, they're saying this and our, our, the Word says that. What do we believe? What does the Word mean? They're even making us doubt whether we know what the Bible says or not. And you know what the first temptation was ever to enter the world? Did God really say that? And they're still using that tactic. Does God really say that? I think in the process of God testing our faith and writing the foundation. 
He's sorting out the following. I don't mean everything coming after, but I mean he's sorting those who are following him and those who are practicing some religion. He's sorting those out from each other. He's sorting out those who love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength from those who make an idol out of their idea of love or out of themselves and exalt themselves and acceptability. You know, people ask the question, well, if God is, if God is for it, shouldn't it be popular? No. We are told at the very beginning, the world hates me, it'll hate you. As a matter of fact, if you're in a popular position, I urge you to examine your stand. If the way you feel and believe about things is the way pretty much everybody else in the world feels, probably it's not how God feels. You think about it. Now, I want to, I'm going to read out of Second Thessalonians chapter 2 for just a moment, and then we're going to come up on this. But this is the, the, the definition of the dynamics of the end time. And I want you to hear this. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds, this is verse 7, the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. In other words, these are the things that are going to happen just before. Just before Jesus is coming back. And it's going to be a total turnaround of God's commandments, turning them upside down. And the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power. I mean, it's going to get more and more difficult to know where to stand. Through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways... That wickedness deceives those who are perishing. Now understand this. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. That's why they're perishing. For this reason, here it is again, God sends. See that? God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have what? Delighted in wickedness, pleasure in sin. Because they are willing to sell out to the momentary pleasure of sin, God gives them over. Now, I'm not singling out a single sin here. I'm showing you this is the the way of the end time for us. People will be lovers of selves, lovers of pleasure. We're there. And they delight in wickedness. Therefore, what does God do? He sends them a delusion that they will just get deeper into the lie. That doesn't sound fair, does it? Well, you know what? 
I actually prayed, Lord, if I'm delusional, show me. I don't want to be the one that's delusional here. I'm not being presumptuous thinking just because I think it, it's right. But what should we do? We've got to dig to make sure we understand the truth, and then we have to determine that we're going to commit ourselves to that truth no matter, right? No matter what the consequences are, or else we will find ourselves delusional, refusing to be saved, rescued, delivered. The final thing that I'd say that he's doing is he's watching to see what you're going to do. What can the righteous do? What are you going to do about it? And we've been given things to do. First and foremost, pray. Specific type of praying here. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people for kings and those in authority that we may live peaceable and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, I want to I, I challenge you how many people pray that way regularly. When is the last time that you opened that and said, God, things that are happening in our nation are contrary to your desire here. Please, God, make SCOTUS rule in a way that will allow us to continue to live in peace and spread the gospel. Is it any wonder why things go the way they do? We, we have something we can do. We have something we can do. Here's what you can do. You've got a calendar on your phone. Set the calendar for 2 o'clock every day, and that scripture pops up on your calendar, and you say, God, just 15 seconds. God, we want to live at peace and spread the gospel. Help us because we can't do it ourselves. We know we can't turn this around ourselves. Pray. We can pray. What can the righteous do? We can rely on the Word of God for your thoughts and feelings about issues. And listen. It's all smoke and mirrors anyway. We're being drawn into a distraction ourselves so that we will... This is what they want us to do. They want us to get into conflict over the issues instead of doing what God said do. What is the church supposed to do? Be the political stalwart in every community? Or is it supposed to be the center of discipleship for the community? You knew I was going to get there, didn't you?
So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast. This is the second Thessalonians passage again. As brothers and sisters, that's going to happen. So then, it's very imperative that you stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. It's very important. Third thing you can do is return to the foundational practices of God's Word. The foundational practices of God's Word. Now, we've already gone over that with the brick and the two-by-fours. We've already gone over that. But I want us to see that the church at Ephesus was having this problem. And God says this, Jesus says this through the, the, the Apostle John, I have this against you that you have left your what? What is the first love? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. You have left that. So what do you do? Remember what you're supposed to do from where you've fallen. Repent. Do your first works over again. He's given us a formula for focus here. Love God and make disciples. What's the first work? What did Jesus tell you? Make disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. He is with us as long as we're making disciples. When we stop doing that, what does it say? I will come and remove your lampstand from his place. I'll leave you. As a church, if you cease to love God and make disciples, what use are you as a church if you're not doing those two things? What use are you as a believer if you're not cooperating in those two things? Finally, We need to rally to the hope of encouragement that these things remind us about. In in Luke chapter 21, they're decrying. Jesus said this is going to happen and everybody's going to decry. There are earthquakes everywhere. The storms in the sea. There's people lying to us, giving false prophecies. And the people are following after them. They're believing lies and they're going out after this. All this mayhem is taking place. And what is Jesus telling? When those things happen, lift your heads and look because your redemption is drawing close. The more we see things falling apart, the more hope we ought to have. That's counterintuitive, isn't it? As bad as I can paint the picture today, it ought to give you more hope than you've ever had. Because the time's drawing near. We see it happen. Do you know twice in the New Testament, it says that one of the great issues of the last days will be marriage. Do you know that? Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, they were marrying and giving in marriage. And then Paul tells Timothy, and they will forbid marrying. 
Both of those are happening at the same time right now. Our redemption is getting closer. And, and since the message on Revelation that I preached to you about the four horsemen, I've seen other things come to light in that. It's just happening on a daily basis today. And that can scare you if you're not ready. Or it can give you hope if that is your hope. If that is your hope. You know, we were told by Paul that there are three important things. 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. But love has to be as God defines love. And this is my encouragement to you. That you don't despair, but that you see the big picture. And you rally to that promise. And His throne is in heaven. What can the righteous do? Whatever he says. Lord, we give this to you. To dedicate ourselves to the foundations. Loving you. And then, loving others. Our neighbors, ourselves. Conquering the world, not by military might political strategy but by your love and your power and your presence in our lives and we ask you to not let I ask you do not let our souls rest go out of this place and stock this on the shelf is another message we've heard rather make it burn upon us day and night that we only find rest in surrender and in embracing the truth that you have given and we ask it in Jesus name thank you for listening today We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.